0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. This morning is obviously the the easiest of the three topics because I I, I don't think that there's anybody in the room uh, that would debate me on whether or not human trafficking is a good thing or whether or not it exists or whether or not its harms can be readily seen. And so in that sense... um, and Carlos, thank you. (laughs) And yet, there is a darkness, a dark underbelly of our city that many of us, like the other issues, would prefer not to look at. Because it doesn't jive with our curated Instagram streams because it doesn't jive with the narrative that our city is only beautiful all of the time, because it doesn't jive with the narrative that in a city in the land of opportunity, a city of opportunity in the land of opportunity, there would be many among us who are enslaved. And from whose enslavement maybe we even benefit. And so when we talk about where this issue comes from it would behoove us to look at its present reality in our world today there are over 45 million people in the world who live as slaves 45 million is more than were trafficked during the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade there are 158 countries in the world with populations below 45 million, 158. Never before in the history of the world have there been 45 million slaves, and the market value of a slave today is about the same as the 64-ounce Yeti that you brought with you this morning. But that's not all. One in four of those 45 million are children. A child goes missing in India every eight minutes. In the United States, 77% of trafficking victims are people of color, but somehow race isn't an issue we should address. In China, babies are kidnapped and put up for international adoption. In Sri Lanka, Children are trafficked and made to serve as soldiers. Across the world, four billion people live outside the protection of a system of laws, and we take ours for granted. As many as 11.6 million of the 45 million are held in forced commercial sexual exploitation. And Houston is a hub for both domestic and international trafficking. I mentioned it earlier, the I-10 corridor is the number one route for human trafficking in the United States. One in every five victims that are trafficked in the United States are trafficked between Houston and San Antonio on I-10. And somewhere between 80 And 90% of sex trafficking victims were at one time foster children that were never adopted. On average, it takes 48 hours for traffickers to make contact with a newly homeless child in our city. 48 hours. This is pure evil, but it is not a new evil. All the way back in Genesis, the opening book of the Bible, by chapter 6, right? By chapter 6 of Genesis, starting in verses 1 and 2, the world that as recently as chapter 2 dwelled in innocence and communion with God exhibits the deep depravity of discommunion with God and it exhibits that deep depravity in the sexual exploitation of women. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Didn't take long. And so the question, I think for us this morning, remains frustratingly the same. And I say frustratingly the same because no matter where you would sort of plot the start of humanity on your timeline, this issue has been with us since then and continues in greater magnitude today than it ever has. And so the question frustratingly is and remains, What can we do about the heinous sin of human exploitation, whether for sex or otherwise, when irrespective of our thoughts on human origin, this problem is ever present? What can we do? You see, if you're like me, most of my life I've been guilty of seeing the gospel of Jesus as primarily a fix for spiritual brokenness. And that physical brokenness and the outworkings of our spiritual brokenness were something that we just have to put up with, that we'd have to learn to cope with, that we'd have to learn to just have joy in while we wait for Jesus. And that's a pretty easy thing to believe when you're me and you live where I do and you're the color that I am. But when we read Jesus' own words, it's impossible to arrive at that conclusion. And so let's go to our text. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, tells us this story about Jesus coming to Nazareth. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. He's recently uh, been tempted. He was baptized by by John, tempted in the desert. Now he begins his ministry. He comes to Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue where his people would gather on their day of worship, and he stands up in their midst, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. So he's reading from the Scriptures. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place in it where these words are written, and this is what he reads. Starting in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as soon as he's done, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and there's a palpable silence as they wait for Jesus' next words. And they are as follows. Today. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you can imagine that a portion of scripture that was read and likely familiar. And that likely spurred a sense of longing in its hearers for the day when the Messiah would come were immediately confused that the guy whose dad built their kitchen table is saying he's the guy and so what is jesus doing in this moment at the beginning of his ministry he reads this text in particular why why Well, I believe it's because he is declaring for us his purpose, his entire purpose in coming to us in flesh and blood. And what is that purpose? To proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty, right? To declare for us this new reality that the kingdom of God is at hand and that we have but to repent and believe and we might enter. But he doesn't stop there. He didn't come just to proclaim liberty or to proclaim good news, but to give sight to the blind, to give liberty to the oppressed. And so although there is a spiritual dimension at play that is important and cosmic in its reality, there is a physical dimension that is in play that Jesus clearly intends to fulfill. And we can know that Throughout the rest of his ministry, he's regularly healing people, giving sight to the blind, giving freedom to those who were in bondage, spiritual or physical. The lame walked, the demon possessed, were freed. Jesus defended the weak, restored dignity to the downtrodden. His mission was not just to rescue people from spiritual bondage. He also offered a real freedom for those in physical bondage. And so what we're reading in Luke 4 is Jesus' mission statement. Jesus' purpose on earth. But our current reality is such that Jesus is not with us in his flesh, in his blood, standing among us. And so this still doesn't answer our question. What can we do? We know that Jesus came to provide spiritual and physical rescue to those who were broken, to those who were enslaved, to those who were oppressed. But what are we supposed to do? Well, regularly in the New Testament, the books written after Jesus came, uh, people who follow Jesus are called the body of Christ. And so Jesus' body does, in some sense, endure on us, in, in us. It endures on this earth in us because it is us. We are the body of Christ. And so all that Jesus did in his body on the earth, everything he said, everything he did, he now does through His body, through us. And so that means that Luke chapter 4 describes not only the mission of Jesus, but also the mission of the church. In John chapter 20, Jesus says these words, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter says this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. So, if Jesus steps into the mess of the world to bring both spiritual and physical rescue and redemption, then so should we. That's the only question remains how? So when we ask this question, what should we do? It's not, it's not a question of should we do something or should we not, right? What should we do? We should step in to the areas of brokenness that Jesus himself stepped into. And now the only question that remains for you and I, as followers of Jesus in the room this morning, is how? How do we step into a multifaceted issue like human trafficking and not only declare the freedom that has been won for both trafficker and trafficked in Jesus, but also demonstrate that Jesus brings with him not only a spiritual freedom, but a physical freedom as well. Allow me to start from a bit of a philosophical place. Human trafficking is proof that the world is broken, right? The human heart is broken, that we are depraved, right? And talking about these things can be depressing, and they can lead us to, I think, a sense of futility, of hopelessness. And I think in some ways that's right, because none of us on our own are sufficient to solve this issue, to rectify it, to make it right, to bring it to justice. And so it can be depressing, it can be hopeless, but listen, it doesn't have to be. As Christians, we are always the people of hope. We are the people of hope. If anyone can stare down the darkest parts of our world with hope, it is us. You see... As Christians, we believe that Jesus' resurrection both promised and initiated a new creation. And we can know through Jesus and through his life and through his death, but not only through his death, through his resurrection, that our God is a promise-keeping God. That what Jesus experienced are what the Bible calls the first fruits. That what he experienced in his bodily resurrection, so too will his people. And so our goal as Christians is not to escape this world. Our goal as Christians is not to be removed from the darkness, but rather to be seen in contrast with the darkness. As ones in whom the light of life has shone in the person and work of Jesus. Our goal as Christians is to take part in Christ's renewing of the world. We are God's agents in bringing about this new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus came bringing a ministry of reconciliation, and so now we are ministers of reconciliation also. Again, right, what Jesus came to do in the body, He now does through His body, you and I. And when the day dawns and the light of God's glory chases down every shadow of evil, we will be there, right there with Him. Now, to be a people of hope doesn't mean that we don't also lament. We lament human trafficking. It's a gigantic problem, but we don't have to be overwhelmed by the problem. We don't have to wonder whether this sort of thing will come to an end. Right? Because it will. And we can have hope and we can have confidence even as we stare down the absolute depths of human depravity. And we can have hope not only because we know that there is a future reality that we can be sure of because of what Jesus has done in the past and what He's doing even now in the present among us. It's also grateful, it's a grateful thing to be aware of the fact that Jesus sends us into the darkness, into the fray, together. In that we are not solo abolitionists. We do not bear the weight of human brokenness alone. Jesus bore the weight of human brokenness alone, but we are a royal priesthood. And we are following Jesus into the darkness in which He already walked. And so throughout history, God has repeatedly used his church to bring liberty to those in bondage, both spiritual and physical. And even today, God is using his church to bring freedom for men and women and children all over the world. You see, Jesus was an unlikely hero to the oppressed. And in him, so are you. So are we. We don't have to Nor can we do everything, but all of us can do something. And we can trust that in our weakness, Christ's power is perfected. And so we can have hope. This is the first thing we should do is we should wake up in the morning and we should understand that although there are lamentable things, things that should rightly produce tears in our eyes that surround us in our city, we can look at those right in the face and know, and know that God in His sovereignty, by His power, through the work of His Son and His Spirit-empowered people will bring those things to an end. And with that in mind, here's a few practical things that we as a small expression of God's church in this gigantic global city with gigantic global problems begin to do. The first is this, and it may sound trite, and, but I don't mean it to be. The first thing we can and should do is this, we should pray. We can pray for the oppressed. We can pray for their oppressors. And we can pray with confidence because God. not only does God hear our prayers, but He has promised, again, He has promised justice and redemption. It will happen. Ours is not to know the day or the time or the place or the methods in which that is to happen, but we can beg of the Lord that it would come soon. We said this in our revival series. There, is, there are many, many who have offered prayers without seeing revival, but there has never been a revival without prayer. There will never be a revival in our city without prayer, and there will never be meaningful justice done by God's church apart from the power of the Holy Spirit that we call down upon us in prayer. It just won't happen. So we can pray. Second thing we can do is we can raise awareness. A lot of people, when they talk about modern-day trafficking, like to quote William Wilberforce, who was a well-known abolitionist um, in our country's history. He was a leader uh, to abolish the slave trade in the 1800s. But there was a time. There was a time when Wilberforce was not an advocate for abolition. It was not until he was introduced to an abolitionist named Thomas Clarkson that Wilberforce decided to join the fight. And so here's the thing. You and I might not be Wilberforce, but you might know him. And they might just need to hear about what's happening in their city. And they might just need to know how deep the darkness really is for them to be spurred into action on behalf of those people. There's a third thing we can do. We can stop looking at pornography. Porn perpetuates the sex industry. And research research shows that some of the women in pornographic films are in fact there against their will. And even if they're not, the reality is that pornography increases sexual demand, fuels prostitution, and so if we would stop buying men, women, and children, people would stop selling men, women, and children. If we're growing the market for pornography, we're growing the market for slavery. Fourth, we can use our gifts and give of our time. Some of us in the room this morning can sway politics. All of us can contact our congressman or woman. Some of us can influence laws. All of us can support law enforcement. Some of us can use our platforms to advocate. All of us can share statistics in the break room. And I know that doesn't make you like the fun guy, right? Like Altuve's batting average is way more fun to talk about than 25% of humans trafficked in our city drive down I-10. Meaning, on their way to work this morning, they probably shared the road with someone who didn't want to be there and was on their way to do something they don't want to do. Some of us can employ former victims. All of us can support businesses that do. Some of us can offer medical or psychological care to victims. All of us can offer spiritual care to victims. So we can use our gifts, and give of our time. There's the fifth thing. We can give of our finances and resources. Didn't expect that one, did you? Of course you did. Plain and simple. Taking down a $150 billion worldwide industry requires money, and there are in Houston alone plenty of organizations that would be happy to take some money off your hands for that good cause. Next, we can serve the homeless. The homeless, especially homeless children, are the most vulnerable people in our city. They are the most susceptible to human trafficking, full stop. So we can serve the homeless. We can also support local schools. High school dropouts are more likely to be victimized by human trafficking and they're more likely to victimize others. So investing time in school-aged children, in mentoring at-risk teens, that is fighting human trafficking. We can also foster and adopt children. If it's true that up to 90% of domestic trafficking victims were previously foster children, then fostering and adopting is an extremely effective way to fight human trafficking. And finally, we can share the gospel. Two of the most effective evangelists in the Bible, Stephen and Philip, were also actively engaged in mercy ministry. They were, they were deacons. Those who are burdened enough by spiritual darkness to speak the light of the gospel are often those who are burdened enough by physical darkness to be the light of the gospel. And so we cannot separate gospel word From gospel deed, human trafficking begins in the human heart. And so the gospel takes an axe to the very root of the problem. And so listen, I know that none of these things are revolutionary. And my hope is that we wouldn't simply hear them as a checklist. We personally don't need to do each one of these things. Just pick a couple. Our goal is not to end human trafficking as individuals. The immensity of this issue calls for the aggregate power and influence of the church. Not just your personal efforts. And that's good news. And so my simple question as we close is this. What would it look like if our parishes picked one or two of these things and did them faithfully for the long haul? How would we look different? How would our communities look different? And and more importantly, how would our city look different? You see, when I start thinking about those things, the picture that I see is beautifully and wonderfully compelling. It is God-glorifying, Jesus-honoring, Spirit-empowered, and it leads us to the doorstep of revival. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together and we're grateful, Father, that we can talk about the darkest and most depraved corners of our existence with hope. With hope because we know that there is one who came before us and who has given his own body and who has given his own blood so that our body and blood might be spared. And so, Lord, there is justice that has been enacted upon the body of Jesus. And there is mercy extended through the person of Jesus. And, Lord, each of those things will be finally and fully fulfilled in the day to come. The mercy that you choose to extend will be extended. And the fullness of justice that you purpose to make right Will come. And we thank you for the many ways and the small ways in which it will come through us, Lord, this small community of people who long to be faithful to your commands, who long to be faithful to your mission statement, which is not only one of the proclamation of liberty, but the giving of liberty to those who are captive and oppressed and enslaved in our world, and not just in our world, God, but in our city. So Lord, fill us this morning with all of the nourishment that we need for the daunting task that lies ahead. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.